Welcome to the Healthcare Executive Podcast, providing you with insightful commentary and developments in the world of healthcare leadership. To learn more, visit ACHE.org. And without further ado, your host. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Healthcare Executive Podcast. So excited as our guest today is Amy Webb. She is a quantitative futurist and founder and CEO of the Future Today Institute, a consulting firm that helps leaders of Fortune 500 companies and government agencies unleash their ability to imagine the future. She is also a professor of strategic foresight at New York University Stern School of Business and a visiting fellow at Oxford University's Sayed School of Business. Before founding the Future Today Institute in 2005, Webb covered technology and economics for the Wall Street Journal and later reported on emerging technologies for Newsweek. Amy is the author of several best-selling books. She served as a columnist and contributor for such publications as Inc. Magazine, Harvard Business Review, The New York Times, Wired, and Fortune. She's a life member of the Council on Foreign Relations, and she's a steward and steering committee member of the World Economic Forum's Future of Media, Entertainment, and Sport Board, as well as its Global Futures Council. Amy is also a winner of the Thinkers 50 Radar Award. She's been named to the BBC 100 Women List and the Thinkers 50 Radar List of Influential Management Thinkers. And she'll be the keynote speaker at the Malcolm T. McEachern Memorial Dress titled Scenes from the Future of Healthcare. That's coming up during ACHE's 2023 Congress on Healthcare Leadership, which will take place March 20th through the 23rd in Chicago. And you can register for that at ACHE.org slash Congress. All right. Now let's hear about that address. Amy, welcome to the Healthcare Executive Podcast. Hi, Eric. Thanks for having me. Okay, with that intro, right where I started, fascinating line of work and, you know, your title, quantitative futurist. So (laughs) what is that? What What is is it that that you do every day? Yeah. So you had mentioned um, that I help executives and and their organizations imagine futures. Um, So the imagining part is good, but that is not enough. So the easiest way to understand what somebody who works in strategic foresight does is we use data-driven models, so this is very much not speculative. <laughs> we, uh, we gather data from the present. We sort of build different models to figure out what those next order implications might look like. And then from that, we build strategic scenarios. So these are, again, sort of narrative descriptions that describe what might happen next. But the key here is data, evidence, and just you know, a lot of times just models. We, we build a lot of models. The goal of this work is to help leaders make better decisions today. Because what I'm, you know, I, I've been at this now for 20 years. And, and actually, as a field, foresight has been around for a century. And a lot of people who study game theory, which is my academic background, wind up doing some flavor of this work. So I think within healthcare and medicine, there's this sort of push-pull tension between, you know, the academic rigor and regulatory frameworks and things that force the field to look much farther out. But you also have to think through external forces that are shaping whether or not you like it, the industry. And that has to do with like artificial intelligence mm-hmm. and all different types of technologies and bioengineering and things like that, which will also contribute to what that future looks like. So it's this, you sort of have to kind of think near and long-term at the same time, because you have to make decisions, especially in healthcare, you know, like you're not super agile. It's just the industry is not designed that way. So if we see on the horizon and we do some cataclysmic changes coming at you, you actually have to start working on that now. 
So when you are presenting these scenarios and they're all data-driven, are there situations, how do you determine how many scenarios to present <laughs> in front of somebody? Is there a situation where these 50 yeah, things yeah. could happen? Yeah. So there are different schools of thought on this. It used to be, you know, like 30 or 40 years ago that you might present, you know, five or six different versions of the future. And again, this is just like, I mean, this is really just pulling different variables. So mm -hmm. if we have, if we prioritize X number of variables, let's say five, then what we want to do are, are comparative statics. So we just sort of want to see what happens if certain things change in certain ways relative to others staying constant. It's, it's kind of boring in a way. You know, my preference would be for executives to clearly articulate and prioritize, you know, between eight and 10 things, some of which are things that they know and others are uncertainties that they just haven't thought about yet, which, you know, gives us the ability to put together somewhere between three and five scenarios, again, showing different plausible futures. The point of which is to get them to a point where they can make a decision because the scenario is not the end. The scenario is actually the beginning, right? That's what you use to perform a gap analysis. You do something called backcasting, which is if this is our preferred future, what is it going to take for us to get there? That's how you figure out what CapEx looks like. I think the big challenge with executives in every field, but I, I do see this a lot in healthcare specifically, is that everybody just wants like, nobody has any time, right? And it's like, just give me two. I just want, just give me two scenarios and, and uh, all this gap analysis stuff. We, we got to worry about our hospitals going bankrupt, whatever. We just got to deal with the next couple of quarters. We cannot deal with the Star Trek future that you're talking about. That's a huge, huge mistake. Mm -hmm. So this is a it's a part of strategy. It's just a, an area of strategy. So for those of you who are chief strategy officers, this is in your wheelhouse. It's mm -hmm. using a lot of the same tools. It's just that we go out further and deal with more complexity, ambiguity, and uh, uncertainty. But I guess that was a long way of, I didn't, did I answer your question? I don't have an answer. I don't yes. have a specific answer, but the answer is not two. Right. And <laughs> yeah. I need to act on those scenarios as well. And you mentioned Star Trek, you talked about technology a little bit. So when we're talking about AI or virtual reality, blockchain, nanotechnology, what emerging tech do you think healthcare leaders should be focusing on in the coming years? One or all so, of them? Yeah, so many. I, sadly, this organization is only giving me, uh, I'm, I'm kind of joking, they're giving me a reasonable amount of, of time to talk, but I could literally talk to you all for like eight hours. Yeah. So, so there's a lot that range from you know, within the within this the field of AI, there's generative AI, which everybody's very excited about talking about right now. So that's like Chat GPT, which uh, at least journalists seem to be talking a lot about. This is the the system from OpenAI that uh, generates realistic sounding copy, any type of language, but it'll also do things like write little software code, like in Python and things like that. So there's there's text. There's sort of like anything, there's like text to anything. So if I type in a prompt, it will spit out, you know, the, the beginning abstract of my academic paper. You know, it also might spit out the beginning of a lecture, but there's image generation as well. So here's something terrifying that everybody I'm hoping is aware of. And if not, you know, this is on your near-term horizon. Um, we're all familiar with a deep fake at this point. This is where somebody uses AI to generate most famously like Tom Cruise in TikToks, you know, and Tom, Tom Cruise wasn't actually doing those things. Well, 
it's already been proven that you can infiltrate a diagnostic center or a hospital center and generate MRI scans that reveal cancerous tumors, meaning I could take somebody's perfectly normal MRI scan and add to it a tumor that looks benign, mm. which is the evidence, you know, hopefully you would combine that with other evidence, but there are definitely edge cases where somebody's blood panel may reveal them to be, maybe they got the flu or so, there's elevated levels of things, right? And what looks like to be a weird tumor, it's possible that that person may go in for chemotherapy and not need it. And, and the problem is we've already started to see evidence that not only is this possible, but it's a vulnerability because of how hospitals are organized. So that's something I would be paying attention to. I think there's an entire, so that's like negative, and I've got lots of terrible risk-oriented problems that everybody should be thinking about. On the flip side, there's a lot happening, I think, that could improve outcomes in hospitals. And, and efficacy and, and basically like help people be healthier. And, and I think that there's a new profession waiting to be born that I will definitely be talking about, which is a, a sort of patient experience designer. So in the field of computing and gaming, there's such a thing as a user experience designer. I think we are approaching this inflection point where there's enough technology and data being generated and created where a patient experience designer would work alongside a hospitalist and some others to do things like incorporate health data from other places like a Fitbit or you know whatever the patient's willing to give you access to. And if it's the case that you, know, you could use diminished reality, again, like a way of dampening the sounds on Windows, you know, as far as the doctors and the, and the nurses and the staff are concerned, all of the critical audio cues that they hear, all the beeping still exists, but within the patient room, they can't hear any of it. And maybe for that particular patient, certain colors stress them out and other colors make them feel, you know, differently. You know, you could automatically adjust some of that. So anyhow, I think, I think, and then obviously when they get home, continuing to use remote patient monitoring and things like that to, to check in on them. I think we're on the cusp of new, a, a, like a new discipline being needed and this person needing to have an understanding of technology and data and regulations and, you know, the, the healthcare ecosystem and things like that and be able to liaise between caretakers or caregivers and, um, and, and patients. Let's take a little bit of a deeper dive on that on patient experience, because mm -hmm. you just mentioned wearables and what you know, the positives we can get from that and telehealth. So as we talk about what could be a patient experience designer in their future, what other things do you see how the patient experience is going to evolve in the coming years? Right. So again, deep personalization, which we're already seeing across so many other different fields. I, I had abdominal surgery over the, I don't think I'm, viol I'm probably violating HIPAA by telling everybody this, <laughs> probably, but I'll tell you anyways. I had abdominal surgery over the summer and I happened to have a great surgeon doctor who I have a longstanding relationship with who knows me very, very well. And we're pretty aligned on what my idea of a good experience is and what my preferences are for aftercare. Rather than loading me up, on pain medications and things, you know, we, we have already had a different plan in place. 
that level of personalization is available to me because I'm paying a lot of money out of pocket because I'm privileged and I can afford very expensive providers and I'm happy to pay them whatever they want most of the time. That is not the experience for the vast number of people. Um, and I should say, this abdominal surgery that I had, I got into very good shape before it. Uh, I was already in decent shape, but I got in pretty good shape and I was back doing like long distance cycling, which is one of the things that I do within a few weeks afterwards. And it was because I was coached on how to heal. I had a level of personal, just personal detail that again, the average person doesn't have anywhere close to. And from a value point of view, that meant I was out of work less. You know, I only, I was out of work for a minimal amount of time. I was able to return to the office by choice. I'm the CEO, so I could have taken as much time off as I wanted, you know, and I, uh, I had like all of the potential side effects issues. They, they weren't problems for me. Here's where yeah, that, that doesn't scale. And it, the, the economic model for that doesn't make sense. So can't we use available data? Can't we use machine learning? Can't we do a better job? I mean, I know part of the problem is everybody's locked into their EMRs, electronic health records, EHRs. Ugh, that day, like, that's a whole other thing, right? But, but I think that there, there exist in other parts of the universe ways to deeply mine, refine, and, and gain insights from data. Just, I don't see it in your space. So again, I think this is a enormous opportunity to automate a lot of the experience that I had to do lots of things. I mean, yes, make patients happier in the long run, but oh my gosh, you know, what should what what might have otherwise taken six weeks worth of recovery or longer, I was able to minimize. I actually felt great. Like I, I feel oof, I felt awesome after after the surgery. I took uh, one day's worth of pain medications. And again, I, I recognize that my experience is not everybody's experience for those who need pain, yeah, whatever. All of this stuff, everybody is already in their heads refuting what I'm saying. Like, I, I'm with you, right? I totally get it. But I think this is a place where there's been so much resistance to change. Re what would real transformation in the patient experience require? a significant amount of reperception and rethinking how things work today. And it would require leaders to really challenge their cherished beliefs. Th this is not easy stuff mm -hmm. in the field of, of healthcare. It's not. But the sort of better future of an optimal patient experience is not going to show up fully formed. You got to work at it, which means challenging those cherished beliefs, making better use of data, uh, striking up partnerships that maybe don't exist yet because because others are already working at it and you're going to at some point get disrupted whether or not you want to be. Well, we're glad to hear you're happy and healthy now <laughs> and we've been doing a good job kind of painting a picture of what the future is going to look like for healthcare leaders and you know, maybe you've done some of this during this conversation for your upcoming address. We don't want you to give away the whole address here, but maybe what are some of the scenarios you plan on talking about over the next, you know, what the next 10 to 20 years are going to look like? Can you provide a little sneak peek into your yeah. address for us? Sure. Again, I know that 20, listen, if I was talking to bankers, you know, we, we do work across different industries. And if I was talking to 
you know, a lot of the other kinds of companies that we work with, I would not bother with a 20 year scenario. There's just too much uncertainty. There's, you know, but healthcare is different. You really have to go further out because for all of the reasons, all of, you know, change takes longer. So in your case, I'm going to talk a lot about this idea of a patient experience designer and, and what jobs will probably need to exist in ways that you're not thinking through yet. This is important because it's not like you can change accreditation overnight and accreditation standards. I mean, there's, there's just like all of these moving pieces. So now is the time to talk a lot about this. The other issue is there are existing shortages. So we know that there's, you know, horrific shortages across many areas of healthcare. There, you know, one way to approach this is we've got to flood the market and try to get people willing to be nurses, right? Another way to approach this is we've entered the era of assistive technologies, cognitive technologies that are assistive and robotic technologies that are assistive. I feel very confident that 10 years from now or so, we're gonna look back at surgeons who performed surgery without the benefit of a digital twin, for example, and think like, wow, like that was barbaric. I, you know, <laughs> and it's some, it's it, the, the analogy is a pilot. Um, one of my closest friends is a commercial pilot and he's very good. I think if you put him in a World War II era plane, I think he, you know, he has fundamental knowledge of how airplanes work and what, you know, how, you know, physics, right? The physics of flight. He, I think he has, you know, basic knowledge, but he doesn't have autopilot. All of the stuff that he's going to be looking at is, uh, is different than what exists today. And he often marvels at you know, the, the guys who were flying in the 1940s, and it's amazing what they were able to do. I think we're going to have some of that same experience 10 years from now, surgeons looking back saying, wow, you know, or what be whatever becomes our sort of next generation general practitioners looking back and saying, I can't believe there was a field of just radiology. Like yeah. that's, that's crazy to me, right? I can't believe we had so many people doing something that today is you know, pretty much automated. So, yeah, I mean, I, listen, this is either like an apocalyptic hellscape or a, 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 like a wonderful future, depending on your perspective, which I recognize. But the, the point is that these aren't, again, these aren't speculative, that this, this stuff is happening in some form or another. And I didn't even talk about engineered biology and things like that. So I'm going to cover some of these different areas of convergence, which is the important piece and talk through some probabilities of, you know, what might happen. But again, like the scenarios, you know, it, I, I hope to, um, I hope to, you know, be a little provocative and get people to think differently than they have, but that doesn't matter if you're not willing to go back and make changes or at least do some investigating and sort of thinking through how might your own future be different. That's the step that's needed. And I can't go home with you. I have to go back to work. So, and you addressed this earlier, and this is something that I hope you can expand on because you're right. We're kind of painting two scenarios here a little bit. One of okay, <laughs> you called it, uh, you know, these are risk focused areas as opposed to something positive, and these are going to really help us out. And the challenge for a lot of healthcare leaders, I think, listening is, and you said this earlier, is I've got so many immediate priorities facing me. You mentioned a nursing shortage. You mentioned things going on within my hospital system that I need to 
address now. I can't be thinking about 20 years from now. How do you help healthcare leaders balance that? And I know you we kind of briefly touched on it, but I'd love mm-hmm. to give you an opportunity to expand on that, how you can help healthcare leaders balance the two between the short term and the long term with patient safety really being at the core of that sure. discussion. Sure. And I should mention um, my husband's family are doctors. So I, I, but I'm, listen, I, there was never a moment that I thought maybe someday I would go to medical school. Like this is not, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm super outside the field, but I have a little bit of a window inside. You know, my husband is, I'm going to totally throw him under the bus right now, but it answers your question. (laughs) My husband is uh, very tech leaning, tech forward. He, He started out as an engineer, you know, he's very, very good at what he does. And we, we almost never talk about the future of his practice mm. because I think the quickest way for us to have horrible arguments from which there will be no return and we will wind up getting divorced <laughs> is for us to have that conversation. The reason is because of exactly what you just said, which is, you know, he's, he's, there's so much change happening. He's got staff, he's, pri- he's in private practice. So he's got a mid-sized private practice, but he's got the same staffing issues as everybody else has. He's got, you know, he's trying to stay up to date on the latest patient stuff. There's just, there's a lot. For him to think through the next five years or 10 years, he's just totally not interested. And my answer is like, that's bullshit, man. I, am I allowed to say uh, I may not be? You can edit that I later. I think it's, it's, it's editable later. If we leave it okay. in, we leave it in. Well, here's the thing. And I've like, I even told him that, like, we all know there's a way to do this. You do your near-term strategic planning and you do your long-term strategic planning and you make time to do both and you have to link the two. So there's, I'll have to see if there's time to show this. If not, I'm going to put together a folder of resources for everybody because I I would love to see the industry move a little faster than it has been um, for my own personal reasons because I'm a human and I'm going to need healthcare going forward. There's We use something called a time cone rather than a timeline. So I think a lot of people who work in strategy use a a line, right? And you're sort of looking at what's the next six months, year, whatever, and usually that's tied to your fiscal planning. The problem is that that it tends to be very near term. It tends to be focused on either risk or finance, like financial stuff, and it doesn't account for uncertainty. Most organizations, this is especially true of uh, healthcare and hospitals, is they kind of wind up oscillating between operations and very near-term strategy or near-term financial planning, like in these cycles. And that's how they wind up getting, like that. that's where they get disrupted because there's no room for exploring uncertainty so that you can leverage it. So you have to do that work. However, there's a cadence in successful organizations of this longer-term strategic work that involves tracking signals and and modeling those signals and figuring out, again, using a quantitative system, which signals are trends. The trends are what's used to track change over time. You have a global set of what are called macro scenarios, which are, again, those variables that the executives care most about. Those are created, and then you just look for shifts happening in those over time. Using that information, you, you all of that together, you come up with your best possible case scenario for the future, which again, is useful to have others outside the organization do this together with you because they're going to bring in outside perspective on how things might be different. You align, 
you do your gap analysis, you do your back casting, and then you, you marry that with the strategic work. It takes a little bit to get that set up, but the dividends, like there's no arguing against the dividends that pays going forward. And the, you don't have to have a foresight team of 500 people, but if you're doing this regularly and you have a few dedicated folks to it, then what happens is you're prepared. Because the goal of this work is not to make predictions, it's to be prepared and basically to never be surprised. The fact that this many hospitals, I feel like every day I'm getting an alert of hospitals missing their, quarter, missing their budgets, having financial issues, that shouldn't happen from my point of view. If you were doing the longer term strategic planning and being more agile in your near term decision making, you would not be in that situation, COVID or not, you just wouldn't be. So I don't mean to be glib, but I also don't want to sugarcoat because there's no, that's a, that doesn't help you. You know what I mean? So I'll, I'll go into that. I forget how much time they gave me to talk. I'll figure out a way to get all of this in. I may be talking very fast. Um, and whatever I don't cover, I'll put in a folder and folks can read later on. You've been listening to Amy Webb. She is the founder and CEO of the Future Today Institute. Amy, thank you so much for joining us. You got it. Thanks a bunch. And remember, you can hear Amy. She will talk during ACHE's 2023 Congress on Healthcare Leadership. That'll take place March 20th through the 23rd in Chicago. To learn more and, of course, to register, please visit ACHE.org slash Congress. Thank you so much for listening today. And we'll, of course, catch you next time on the Healthcare Executive Podcast from ACHE. This has been the Healthcare Executive Podcast, brought to you by the American College of Healthcare Executives. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider rating and reviewing on iTunes or your podcasting app of choice. And for more information, find us online at ache.org.